0: welcome to the black athlete a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports i'm lewis moore
1: i'm Derek white we're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes
0: Welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for Living and we Will, we Will Win the Day. And you can check out my audible African-American athletes who made history on Amazon.
1: I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, the Institute of Black World Politics in the 1970s, as well as Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jay The Florida a and and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lewis Moore. Oh, man, it's good to be back. Good to be back. Happy Black History Month. I'm saying this is our this is our time to shine. We are, this is hard work uh, for us this month. Uh, how are you feeling now that there are no black quarterbacks in the Super
0: Bowl? Why why'd you do that to me? Oh man, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna watch. I don't know if I'm gonna watch. Uh, okay, I'm gonna watch. But you know, not having Patrick Mahomes hurts. Uh, it looks like there is a black coordinator in there. In uh, oh man. Raheem Morris. So I might have to go Rams. I might have to go Rams. I'm not sure. though. I have to I have to go back to look at my Twitters when Matthew Stafford got traded by Detroit to see if I said that wasn't going to work out. <laughs> um, and, and then see, because I might have to have another team win. I can't be wrong all the time. You don't um, want to be on old but, takes exposed. That's what you nah, say. No, but you know what? You know what I do, though? I get ahead of them. So I just expose myself. Just... Just, you know, like if I say Jameis Winston is going to be better than Tom Brady, I just let you know I said that, you know, when I'm wrong so no one could expose me. So that's that's always my strategy with those. What about you? Uh,
1: man, this is an interesting, you know, Cincinnati is the regional, uh, team for Kentucky right now. It's always has been, and but it's been, you know, I don't know anybody, but honestly, my white team, my colleagues and my cousin who are Bengals fans, everybody else I know roots for somebody else. I know more 49ers fans who live in Lexington than actual Bengals fans. Um, and then my father-in-law is a Rams fan. And so probably for hell, hell, you know,
0: happy home, <laughs> I might be rooting for the Rams. right right um so yeah that's it well can i ask you a question real quick and then because we got a special guest so i'm gonna shut up uh yeah i say bangles you say bingles yeah is that like a like a like a southern my guest is laughing (laughs) but i've heard other people say bingles before and i'm running if if i'm wrong or is this like a, a southern like a kentucky thing
1: I think you're wrong. I don't know. I have no idea. Is there a correct? We got
0: another guest here, though. no, we get, I mean, get asked.
1: All right, all right, let's let's bring in our guest. In our guest this uh, this evening on this special uh, Black History Month episode of uh, the Black Athlete Podcast, we had to go get uh, historian extraordinaire, uh, my friend, my brother, my colleague. My I'm uh, known for. Ooh, I can't even say how many years, but it's been over two decades. Uh, uh, Jelani, Doctor Jelani Favors who is oh man you have some fancy title now at North Carolina A&T State University <laughs> um and he is the author of Shelter the Time of Storm which is an award-winning book about the history of black colleges and the legacy of activism therein um I've known this brother really since the 90s since uh, we were young um uh, I had I didn't have any more hair than I have now uh, I had far <laughs> less gray hair than I have now. Uh and we I was much skinnier too. So this is it has been a long time. Uh Dr. Favors, welcome to the Black Athlete Podcast.
2: What's good? Bro? Hey, if you were much skinnier, what does that make me? <laughs> <laughs> time, Father Time. Father Time is undefeated, man. I gotta get him off my back somehow. What's good, brothers? Thank you so much for having me, man.
1: All right. So, first things, tell us the the, the, the fancy title of your uh, endowed professorship at North Carolina. The, the A&T.
2: Henry E. Fry Distinguished Professor of History. Henry E. Fry was the first uh, African American Supreme Court Justice in the state of North Carolina. He's an Aggie uh, who graduated from our alma mater, North Carolina A and T State University, uh, and just an incredible pillar of the community, as they used to say. So, pillar of the state. Uh, he's an incredible brother, and I'm honored to. Uh, have a position that bears his name. See, so look at that.
1: That's good. That, man, wow. I, yeah, wow. this guy. He, we have got real, real scholars here today, Lou. We have to be on our best behavior.
0: I, I know, I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah. Now
1: Uncle Nearest has already, already got me acting up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Jelani, so who are you rooting for? First of all, how do you say bingles bangles? Which one is it?
2: I mean, I'm almost positive it's Bengals, like the Bengal tiger. That's what I thought, right? <laughs> I mean, like Bengals <laughs> is something that women wear or <laughs> like the claims, right?
1: I'm pretty sure it's not bangles. I'm pretty sure it's not bangles. I feel like we say bangles, but that's like them. Bengals mocking. is a form
2: of jewelry, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Bingles so- a large, a large uh feline animal. See, look at that. Look at
1: that. That's what that's what all happens right. when you get distinguished professors. They clear well, it you up. You know what? Hey,
2: but rock on, bro. Bengals, Bengals. There you, you go. Bengals, Bengals, Cincinnati Bengals. The, the Bengals, yeah. The on Sunday.
1: <laughs> so who you got, Jay? We go I got start the Rams.
2: Up. I think the Rams are peaking at the right time, man. I think they finally put all their pieces together. Uh, they look good, man. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I would love to see Joe Burrow light up another cigar. But, you know, at this point, I think it's the, the, in the Rams' favor. We'll see. The Rams got
1: the best player on the field. Yes. I mean... You Aaron talking Don- about OBJ? No, I'm talking about Aaron Yeah. Aaron like, he's <laughs> the best player on the field. Uh, and so... I feel like that... They couldn't block nobody. They, which team gave up? The Titans got nine sacks? I feel like that's Nine, what Rams, yeah. I feel like the Rams are trying to replicate that. So... Um, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, the reason we have Jelani on today is for... Our listeners who may not know, uh, there has been over the last, I want to say three or four weeks, Jelani, right, Uh, a a series of bomb threats that have played a a large number of historically black colleges, including North Carolina A&T, and I wanted to have him on to to talk about this kind of serious issue and put this in a kind of historical context, Um, and then from there, we want to pivot to, we've had this discussion on previous episodes about HBCU football, but I... Jelani is one of the biggest HBCU football fans that I know. Uh, and so I got to get his uh, take on uh, uh, the, the Deion Sanders experience uh, and how his Aggies are doing now that they are no longer in an HBCU conference. Um, but first, um, let's talk a little bit about this serious issue about these bomb threats. John, can you just for our listeners uh, give a kind of quick overview of the these threats and and really kind of what the historical significance is?
2: Well, you know, it's it, like you said, it's been about a month um, and it's targeted a variety of different uh, institutions. Uh, I think they ended up getting a lead on on some of the, the threats and suggested that there were a couple of juveniles who had been up to it. Uh, but You know, as I've told a couple of media outlets um, this week, man, that. You know, this is nothing new for Black institutions in general. I mean, HBCUs were born out of the Reconstruction Era, which clearly—and I'm, I'm talking to historians, so I'm not, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir—but I mean, we know this is one of the most racially violent, violent, uh, white terroristic eras in American history. And so, um, you know, we're just simply reliving a lot of those threats that are emerging now, and and uh, we're seeing them. You know, we, we've seen an intensification and resurgence and Overt white supremacist ideals in American society, and so uh, yet again we're, we're seeing black institutions being targeted. And so, uh, but you know, we remain vigilant. We remain uh, uh, courageous in the in the face of that. We remain shelters in the time of storm. So you know, uh, that that's that's my take on it.
1: Can I just say that Jelani just gave us an expert bastard class on how to drop your book title. Yeah, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that was an expert. That was an expert. remember if you got it in. Yeah, you know like I mean, like said, like <laughs> you, hey, man, yeah,
0: you got it, you got it, right? Yeah. Um,
1: Lou, you got to say something.
0: No, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just ask a question. So you said you use the term once again. Can you give our listeners a sense of let, let's say, you know, what is the threat that like an HBC would receive Or Reconstruction or uh, right after Reconstruction?
2: So interestingly enough, like during the Reconstruction era, you know, there were a number of, of, uh, of people who believed that HBCUs were, were fairly benign, actually. They, they believed that they were actually uh, playing a role in producing uh, generations of young African-Americans who would be compliant and complicit um, with the idea of being secondary citizens, uh, of embracing their positions as, as inferior in a society. In a society. Um, But again, HBCUs use that space as a way, that that shelter, uh, as a way to uh, continue to to mold and shape and and, uh, uh, energize those young people to use their voices to deconstruct white supremacy in various ways. Um, So we don't see the same type of terroristic threats aimed at HBCUs during the Reconstruction era that we're seeing aimed at black churches, uh, uh, and, and and black ministers and other political leaders who are literally being assassinated in open and broad daylight. Um, you know, I think that there are a couple of instances of of church uh, of um, fire crosses being burned on a couple of lawns. Like uh, I believe Wilberforce had an incident such as that. Uh, the, the larger threat that that really was targeting HBCUs was this idea of a segregated society itself and how uh, many of these institutions were being crippled uh, by the the failure to um, financially support them through state and and federal funds. Um, That in itself shuttered a lot of doors um, to many of these earlier institutions. But as we move forward into the 20th century and we see this explosion of civil rights activity coming off these campuses in the 1960s, this is where we begin to see some serious threats, um, not just even threats. We we see the the use of state-sanctioned violence against these institutions. Uh, Of course, we just uh, commemorated commemorated the uh, uh, anniversary of the Orangeburg Massacre uh, last week, where you have three students who were uh, murdered on the campus of South Carolina State University in May of 1969. The following year, um, the National Guard and, and the Greensboro police invaded the campus of my alma mater, North Carolina Anti State University. Literally, tanks rolled up wow. the streets. Of, of this campus at Jackson State University you have students being murdered at, at Southern University you have students being murdered so uh, you know at, by by the forces of the state and so yeah i mean you know this is a scenario where especially in the 1960s you see these institutions being targeted by by violence um, and so fast forward now to 2022 now, and i think i'm leaving out a, a pipe bomb explosion that occurred on the campus of, of Florida A&M in the 1990s i believe so uh, again we're, we're not Um, unfamiliar with these type of overt threats uh, or even, you know, the the actions of, of, of racist perpetrators. But as I said before, you know, there's a great book on Spelman's history um, entitled Undaunted by the fight. And and that's what HBCUs remain. We remain undaunted by the fight and continue to keep these doors open and continue to do the work of uh, trying to uplift the masses. Jelani,
1: that's fantastic. Um, uh, there was a report, I want to say, what, last week, I don't know if we talked about this in the pre-show, uh, a few, like, yeah, last week, that a report came out of Forbes talking about how uh, HBCUs have been cheated, and I'm looking at my, I'm looking back through my, because I wanted to get the information right, and so your alma mater and where you currently work, it was cheated out, and this is since, just since the 1980s, right? Right. Over two point seven billion dollars wow. of being underfunded. So you talked about the nature of segregation as being the real kind of you know we talk about the violence is getting a lot of the attention, but what you're talking about is this kind of slow and consistent drain of resources uh, at historically black colleges. Um, talk a little bit about what the legacy is of the, these this loss of two billion dollars for for North Carolina and for and for readers, it's like. Two billion dollars for two point seven for uh, for North Carolina A one point nine billion dollars for uh, Tennessee State and Florida A and Southern is one point three billion dollars Prairie View is one point uh, uh, one billion dollars. These are the amounts of money underfunded by the state. Uh, right. uh, the various states in which these colleges are in. What's the what's the kind of long term impact of of on um, black colleges? And and what are the kind of uh, strategies that colleges are trying to to use to try to reclaim some of these dollars that I think that they are owed?
2: Well, I mean, first, uh, considering this is a sports podcast, you know, what HBCUs have often done best, and what Black institutions in general have often done best, is to punch above their weight class. You know, HBCUs, in spite of being um, underfunded uh, criminally, underfunded, underfunded, um, they continue to produce. Uh, a large portion of of black engineers, of black doctors, of black veterinarians, of black of black dentists. Uh, but getting to your your point, what we clearly see is that this is a, a pure uh, and direct case uh, for reparations. This is a, a direct case for for making amends for a system uh, where separate never meant equal. Uh, and we understand, and not only that, but we know that, that that's a system that was, was maintained by racist white legislators um, who, who took tax dollars and, and made sure that HBCUs never received their fair share. And I think moving forward, I think the the, the blueprint for attacking this has already been laid. Uh, and we've seen in the Ayers case in Mississippi, we've seen just recently with, with what t- took place in Maryland, we've seen what, what is now taking place, I think, um uh, the president of Tennessee State University is making some serious strides in this area, um, but as I've told a, a number of folks on this issue, every HBCU in the United States of America um, needs to sue. Uh, um, we they need to pursue um, this this back pay, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. um, aggressively, and, and that's going to mean alumni stepping up um, to lead those cases, to lead those causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's been some discussion amongst a number of AT alumni about um, launching out on this. but We're talking about hundreds of institutions, um, uh, over 110 or 100, it's, it's a little less than 110 uh, HBCUs that are still in existence right now. Uh, and that's not even including uh, the more than a dozen or so that have actually been forced to close their doors in the past. Uh, but yes, without question, um, there needs to be recourse, there needs to be restorative justice. Uh, and that's the only way the HBCUs are going to attempt to level the playing field. And, and, and in, as I said before, it's just a sports podcast. You know, even when it comes to keeping up with athletic facilities, um, that's the angle um, that HBCUs are going to have to take. They, they are due uh, a great deal from the state uh, governments, um, even from the federal governments as well. Uh, uh, money that was never dispersed equally. So uh, I think that's going to take. Movement within the legal system um, to push for justice on that front. And,
1: and for our listeners, I want to make sure that those numbers, that those billion dollar numbers that I cited earlier, are from just from 1987. That's, just from not, even, 1987, yep. that's not even counting the height of segregation with with like uh, you know I talk about in my book about how Florida A&M was criminally underfunded uh, just in terms of the athletic budget and whatnot. And so I think that there is something to be said uh, uh, about understanding this framework.
2: Um, You know what? While while, while we're on that, I would encourage everybody to pick up um, uh, my colleague's book, Adam Harris, who writes for The Atlantic, um, The State Must Provide, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. It came out within the last year and a half. And it also identifies... Every last single case of HBCUs um, being underfunded by the state and the cases that HBCUs need to make in order to, uh, again, engage in some restorative justice on that front. So that's a really great book um, for your listeners to to pick up if they want to learn a little bit more about that legacy of underfunding and how HBCUs should be pursuing justice moving forward.
1: So one of the things that I talk about in my work, and this is going to, I'm going to transition us into the sports realm, is that I talk about, you know, one of the big arguments in it, that I make in Blood, Sweat and Tears is that Florida AM was uh was at its peak, the best football program in the state of Florida and one of the best black or white in the Southeast and in the country, uh, at, you know, from about 1955 to 1965, for sure, that decade, uh, and you can you know, plus or minus two years on either side of those numbers. And I think one of the things that you just talked about is that the, that, that one of the things that I say in the book is that integration was, uh, had carried tremendous cost. Right. And so how do we view cost? And, you know, and there's a lot of ways, I think your book shelter in a time of storm talks a little bit about this in terms of cost and what we lose and what we gain in terms of the push for integration and focusing on the academic on the athletic realm I'm trying to talk about what's a cost for us, and so in this particular moment, one of the things that we see in the other side of this kind of post integration moment, as schools like in the Southeastern Conference, where I work at the University of Kentucky, that didn't have, want to have anything to do with Black people for the longest, now trotting out, you know, their football teams are seventy five percent Black, their basketball team, there's not a, I don't think there's been a white player that's got a single minute for the university yeah. of Kentucky basketball team this season. Right. Like mm-hmm. not one. Um, and, and so well, they, 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 you know, they tried out, you know, <laughs> eight, nine, 10, even, you know, maybe the, I mean, there's probably some walk-offs that played this season, but I, we're talking about like, they're the 13th and 14th man in, in this equation. Right. right. Uh, and and there's a, di- there's a direct relationship between the kind of talent that used to come through the doors at, HBCUs because of segregation that are now being moved to predominantly white institutions. Uh, And what we've seen in the last two cycles in college football, at least, uh, is that Deion Sanders has come in with all the Deion Sanders personality of primetime and has upset the apple cart. And he has made Jackson State a national uh, uh, talking point in his ability to convince Blue chip talent, the number one player. We talked about this in a previous pilot. The number one high school player has signed with them. The number one Juco player of the previous year who had an offer from Georgia and a whole host of other schools signed with Jackson State. And that is up the ante. Florida AM has done an amazing job. AT has signed a really good class. Southern has been – Grambling hired Hugh Jackson. They're trying to get in there uh, and, and have this thing. And so one of the things that there's – we're in this – this, I don't want to say a, a renaissance is probably too strong of a word, but I think we're in a moment where black colleges are still on the radar are, for a generation of high school students on the radar as a possibility where they had been off the radar, at least since we had gone to college, which was in the nineties, right? There was a moment in the nineties. So there's a big gap, right? We're talking about these kids are born in 2000. They, they don't even remember 98, you know, but right. they and all these schools were really good in the nineties. Um, What's it? You are you are like the biggest black college football fan that I can literally pick up a phone and call at any time. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? I'm gonna let you come in. This is your chance to to take off your message board and bring it to the Black Athlete <laughs>
2: Podcast. <laughs> hey, look, man. I think Dion Dion gave us the thesis years and years ago. It must be the money. Uh-huh. It must be the money. You know, I mean, clearly, you know that that is the the. The major shift um, the HBCUs could not compete with uh, over the years, and, and um, hanging those resources in front of uh, a beleaguered, impoverished, you know, kids coming out of the inner cities, um, it was just really difficult to compete for, the, for for those athletes anymore, you know, who could come and 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 go and taste the fruits of everything that the University of Alabama or Chapel Hill or 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 University of Maryland (laughs) uh, that any of these institutions uh, were offering. It was just difficult to compete for that, you know, but I think what we've seen now, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, all of those, those heavy hitters, you know, let's not forget hoops either, man. You know, you see Chris Paul now Mm -hmm. uh, making a push. I think LeBron has outfitted Florida Mm -hmm. A&M. There has indeed been a resurgence in in the sports world about trying to draw some attention um, to, to HBCUs, but let's also be very clear is that all of that has been exacerbated by uh, and precipitated by the racial hostilities that many um, black folks are feeling, of course, across the board, but especially on many of these college campuses, you know, kids come to these institutions and you know, they understand that um, they are being exploited uh, um, for, uh, for their athletic talents. Uh, and, and a lot of times that doesn't translate into be tre- being treated um, with any type of dignity off of the playing field. And so uh, I think many of them come and, and they become disenchanted. And some of them are saying, hey, you know, I'm going to make that decision to come home. Uh, but I think it's great to see, you know, high level athletes drawing attention. Even shout out to JR Smith, who's an Aggie now, who, who's, you know, clearly he's not in that same boat, but it, it means something when SportsCenter is talking about AT. It means something. Shout out to our track team. You know, our yeah. track team has been doing making incredible. So, I mean, that is that's the type of access and marketing the HBCUs just have not been able to, to to benefit from in the past. And so now that you're seeing top flight um, professional athletes mention our name more and even arguing that, hey, maybe you guys should begin to think about attending some of those institutions. Um, that's that's a win win. Not only that, but of course, you know, you and I talked about this before, Derek, but you know, I think the Celebration Bowl um, was huge. Uh, mm-hmm. for the MEAC and Sweat, Because, again, we never had that type of exposure. <laughs> you know, you don't get a lot of exposure in the FCS playoffs. You, yeah. know, you just don't. You know, nobody yeah. really watches that. But when you're able to lead off bowl season on ABC, that matters. You know, and for A&T, we did that four out of five years, and, and it, it impacted our institution. It impacted us in terms of enrollment. It certainly impacted our ability to, to field a more um, uh, 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 economically um, um, stronger department, athletic department, than some of our peers in the MEAC. Um, But that also ultimately ended up pushing us out the door because we were spending a lot more money on athletics than um, some of our uh, peers were in in the MEAC. And there are a number of administrators who believe that uh, it was time for us to uh, move to to, to greener pastures. And again, that's all debatable. Um, But- uh, I, that's part of their their reasoning is that you know the other institutions were not just they simply were not stepping up the funding for the athletic programs. But again, many of them weren't stepping up the athletic fundings because they couldn't afford to, and still can't afford to. You know, you can't you know uh, end up spending all this money on athletics when you're struggling you know to to hire professors when you're struggling to 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 produce scholarships uh, uh, for your students. So, um, but no, you you know I, I think that again, Dion said it best. It's it's all about the money and and, uh, you know, what we really know is that um, FCS football, FBS football, college athletics in general, it's it's a money game.
1: I think you, you, you hit on a, a couple of good points. Um, Lou, what, you have to come
0: in. Go ahead. Was that No, no, I'm just yeah. enjoying this. Now I'm just going to ask a question, though. Uh, let's who let's let's hypothetical while we're here. Um, let's say an HBCU becomes a big time sports program. Do you think the culture, because what, what I understand for the big time sports programs is the athletes are isolated from the gym pop, right? And so they're, they're, you know, they're, you know, you go to Alabama, it's got its own barbershop in the, in the football facility. They got, you know, some schools got the lazy river with the whole intention is to keep those athletes away from the general population. Let's say Jackson State gets to that big time level. Do you think the culture there is enough where where that changes? Now all of a sudden the athletes are part of the school, or big time is big time, and and the next Dion just wants to keep his athletes in the major football facility away from the general population.
2: I mean, I, I suspect that it probably would reflect um, what what a lot of big time FBS programs. Look like you know Derek and I can tell you as students at Ohio State, you know, you know, we never saw Andy Katzmoyer, you know, hanging around <laughs> or Maurice Claret. Even though Maurice Claret, I think, was an after American studies uh, uh, major, but uh, yeah, they, they 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 deliberately keep those students. And not only that, but now in in 2022 twenty two, oh, they're online, right? You can't, you have online class, yeah. right? Yeah. So now you don't even these kids don't even have to go to class or be a part of that general population. Um, but Lou, again, I, I think it all comes back to this issue of money, man. You know, I, I think that it's great to, to have those dreams. But when, even when we look at Jackson State, they're still light years. I mean, light years behind what their peers. And when I say their peers, I mean, you know, a, a, a FCS program um, in, in the state. of You know, teams that are in the Big South, you know, okay. teams that are in uh, um, the Southern Conference. Um, these are teams that are, are, are spending f- teams in the CAA on um, the colonial athletic association. These FCS programs are spending light years ahead of what Jackson state is, is going to be spending. So again, I think that Dion understands that's what he's up against. And, and right. I, I appreciate the fact that he's coming in with his flash and his flair and everything that Dion brings to the table. And I hope that that brings more attention to the disparities that Jackson state is confronting because, you know, as uh, right now it's a lot of hype, and 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 I think the kids are attracted to that hype because it's Dion, and they believe that. Now, I, I think the other thing that's leveled the playing field, Lou and Derek, are these NIL deals, man. Right. You know yeah. that when when Dion can bring a kid in and say, "Hey, I'm going to get you a deal that's going to net you $300,000. I mean, that that's that's a game changer. That's right. a game changer. I think his son signed with, with Gatorade or, or something like that. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, again. One of the reasons why so many of these black kids were going to some of these uh, um, FBS programs was because of, you know, let's just be honest, under the
1: table
2: handshakes, under the table deals, and, you know, hey, I'm going to get your mama this and let your, your daddy drive that. And and uh, I think the NI deals are, are now, NIL deals are leveling the table somewhat. And I think that there are some folks who are feeling the pressure from that. I mean, I think Dion stole a, I shouldn't say stole, but he, he, he uh, ended up getting a kid that Florida had had a Florida State kid flip on him, and ended right. up coming to Jackson State. And those Florida State folks lost their mind. <laughs> <You know>? They <laughs> right? did. They lost their mind, man. So, uh, you know, I think that um, you know if 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 HBCUs can can build upon that um, and end up. I, I, it's hard for me to even conceive how they close that gap because the gap is so enormous right. in terms yeah. of the financial funding. So can I, 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 can I give? A, let me give I, you an example. Oh uh, yeah, me, go ahead.
1: Yeah, let me give an example of this because I think, like, I think for our listeners, sometimes it's like you know, July D- is talking about this gap, and 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 I've and I've seen how the sausage gets made at an FCS program that doesn't even have scholarships. So I, I worked at, for those who don't know, I worked at Dartmouth for five years, and 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 Dartmouth. It, it, they don't have scholarships. They're not in the FCS playoff. They play 10 games. They play, uh, you know, they play mostly an Ivy League schedule and as 18. They play seven Ivy League games and three regular, you know, three out of conference games. Um, that's their schedule every single season. And Dartmouth recruits, you know, at, before before COVID they were recruiting over 30 kids every single year nationally. They're, they're, they're sending their coaches. To, we had, at one point we had, 3 kids from Hawaii, 2 kids from Washington state, you know, half a dozen like 12 from South Florida, you know, another, you know, another 6 or 7 from Texas, bunch from like this is we're sitting, we're recruiting nationally at a school with no scholarships, no FCS you know the the head coach's salary was an endowed scholarship, so he was the such and such coach of the football team, <laughs> right? Like the the every coach on the at, at Dartmouth, the basketball coach, the women's basketball coach, the the soccer coach, the men, the women's soccer coach, all of them had endowed their coaching salaries were endowed money, right? Like that's the gap from they not even in the we not even talk we, when Jelani's talking about the top of the FCS and the CAA and North Dakota State. That people ain't even thinking about the Ivy League, and I'm like, it's the same at Princeton, it's the same at Harvard, it's the same at Yale, it's the same at Columbia, right? Like this is, those places are not even in the in the We're not even thinking about that as the elite, and and black colleges are so far behind that. I have a friend of mine who was a uh, uh, an AD at Dartmouth and an AD down south, and had an opportunity was up for a job at one of the HBC. He was like. The money was so different. Like I might as well like this is crazy. Like, I can't even, how am I supposed to get anything done?
2: Look, auntie's athletic budget this past year was a little, a little bit more than $14 million. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Ohio State spends at least five million on recruiting right. every year <laughs> in their program. And the top FCS programs, our peers, who we're trying to compete with in the FCS playoffs. Their athletic budget, budgets are twice as much. So how does an HBCU in in athletics, mind you, not even talk about the, the entire institution? How do we how do where do we get fifteen million more dollars from, just to pull us up to, to where we are um, with our peers and, and to, to spend equally and on par with what they do? So again, you know, I, I, when you say you know what what's going to happen when when a, when and if HBCU hits big time as I said before, as, as, as Dion said, it must be the money. So if we, if we can find a way to, 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 to somehow close that gap. And again, it gets back to what I was saying about reparations and, 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 and the state giving us what, what, what is due. Uh-huh. Um, you know, as Derek mentioned, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars in, in back pay that HBCUs never received. Um, that there's a huge ground, a lot of ground to close. Uh, and um, that's the only way that I think HBCU is going to be able to, uh, uh, square up with their with their peers and be competitive if they are um, because right now i mean it's it's, it's a money game and, and it's so, a money game the HBCUs is a losing. so
1: just so just for clarification so ohio state brought in 234 million dollars in revenue <laughs> so their budget was pro- they made i think probably like 20 million dollars last year um and that was in the covid year they still still made money um, they right.
0: got to spend that money too right right so, so they so always- when, you, when you bring in
1: 234 million as a non-profit you' spending 234 million too every dollar is going that you bringing in is going out to right. not to the players which is we always talk about uh there's a report here the SEC every team's going to get 54 million dollars uh this fiscal year right that you know like that's four times what y'all met your whole budget. Is. Yeah. Wow.
2: Wow. yeah, man, absolutely. That's, that's insane. And
1: I, and that's a, and that's the thing. And so uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, Jelani, cause you, you hinted at this earlier, right? We're um, talking about North Carolina AT, that one of the things that's kind of happened, your success and that North Carolina AT success in the celebration goal uh, for for six years, Ant six or seven years, Ant was the most dominant team in the MEAC and and really was the dom- most dominant team in HBCU football. They had beaten East Carolina, uh, a handful of other Division One programs. Um, uh, most famously, your coach was that Rob Broadway who helped me bring me bring me my money. Oh, that's <laughs> Sam
2: Washington. That's Sam uh, Washington. Uh, Sam Washington, bring me, my, bring me my money. Bring
1: me my money. Bring me
2: my money. money. Um, um,
1: <laughs> but then you guys uh, decided to leave the Miac, which has been the you know uh, a historically black conference since the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, your home since the 1970s, to go to the Big South. Uh, this week, uh, there was a report that the Tennessee state, Jackson state, uh, Southern heritage classic, which is paid and played in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Jackson state was like, we not playing that game. Uh, there was a report this morning, this afternoon, I guess, that right. they were like, we're going to play this year, but this, this is, is our last game. year. <laughs> <laughs> this is our last year. Cause it sounds like they didn't have enough money to get out the last three years of the deal. Uh, and, and so there's been a lot of change. Hampton was in the big South and now they're in the CAA. Uh, I think what Jackson State and uh, Dion is angling to move Jackson State into a new kind of a new position, and it's not clear where. Um, you know what's the future? You know, part of HBCU football is these traditions, these classics, the bands, these rivalries that go all the way back to the turn of the century uh, and with each other, right? Because black white colleges weren't playing us on a regular basis or at all. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you how do you feel about your team's move to the Big South? And what do you see? What do you forecast for HBCUs in terms of how they're going to maintain
2: these traditions versus the future? Well, personally, I, I fall in the, in the category and in, and in the camp of, uh, and I, I feel pretty comfortable saying this, that the most ANT alumni were not in favor uh, of that move. Um, like you said, there's so much. Don't cultural get fired, Say it again.
0: Don't
2: get fired, Jolani. Oh, no. no, hey, look. I'm- <laughs> I'm speaking as an alumnus and as, <laughs> as a son of a former ANT football player. You know, Aggie, I believe, blue and gold, man. Um, but, you know, I, it's, it's very – I mean, I'm sure the administration will tell you that the alumni and the fans did not like the move. Um, you know, there's certainly – I'm not speaking for all the alumni, but um, the rank-and-file folks who come to these stadiums because they want to see – Bethune, cookman's band and they want to see how it' banned and they want to you know walk around the tailgate space and 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 have camaraderie with other Hbcu alumni um, they're very upset at this move they think that we in, in some ways are are shaking up our cultural identity um, whether that be true or not uh, you know there, there's there, there are a number of folks who just aren't comfortable with it uh, but at the end of the day I think the other question that Auntie, in particular uh, had to ask itself, is the niche enough, right? Mm-hmm. Is the HBCU niche, is the HBCU brand enough? Like you said, we were extremely successful in the celebration bowl. We were on ABC. In some ways, we were becoming a household name. That's not something that auntie has always been in the HBCU football world. We know Florida A and We know Jackson State. We know Grambling. Um, but auntie uh, and I'm not suggesting auntie hasn't had a successful successful program in the, in the past, but we just have not been as as a uh, um, uh, uh, highlighted as some of the, the other institutions, particularly some of those SWAT institutions. So, um, you know, we, we've done well for ourselves, done good for ourselves over the last couple of years. And then we make this decision um, to go to the Big South. And, and I think a lot of that was us saying that um, the niche was no longer uh, what we wanted to pursue, that we wanted to pursue uh, competition in the FCS playoffs and FCS playoffs and to try to win the bigger picture of, of winning an FCS championship to compete with the North Dakota States and the James Madison's uh, of of the world. Um, but again, that takes dollars, right? It, it takes finances that, um, you know, right now we just don't have. And certainly we can put a challenge out there to our alumni and to try to get other boosters and other folks to, uh, uh, to, to, to give money, to support the program. But um, these other, as I said before, I mean, North Dakota State and, and Montana State and, and James Madison. I think James Madison is moving up to, to the FBS level. But these programs are spending twice as much as we are uh, in, in, in in athletics. And it matters. I mean, that money matters at the end of the day. And So, um, you know, I, I personally would love to see Antti go back um, to the MEAC. But I also understand that, uh, you know, there's some concern about you know, will Delaware State fund their programs? Will Coppin State fund their programs? Is Morgan State going to step up? Uh, is North Carolina Central going to step up? Are they going to step up and field competitive programs and make us stronger across the board? And, and I think that that's what I think the SWAC has embraced the niche. Right? I mm-hmm. think the SWAC has said, look, we're all in. On, they're certainly not only on the, on the Southern Heritage Classic anymore, but we're on, we're all in in the Orange Blossom. We're all in on the Bayou. We're all in on these classic. They give us a brand uh, and that's enough. Uh, but, you know, every time the SWAC steps outside of their conference, what happens? They get punched in the mouth by these SEC teams. So, you know, it's, you could be the, the big fish in the small pond and, and compete against um, your HBCU peers. Uh, but I think the ante had desires and designs of trying to step outside of that pond and, and compete with some of the big boys in the FCS world. Uh, it's one thing to peel off a, a of Carol- East Carolina or a Kent State or UNC Charlotte or Jacksonville State. These are all teams that we've beaten. Even Appalachian State, we beat a few years back, uh, right before they made their transition to FBS. We beat those teams. And, and I think that uh, we, we have uh, hopes. We, we had hopes of, of doing more. Uh, and so this was our first season in the Big South. It didn't go as as well as we would have liked it <laughs> to, to go. As you said, we had a, a COVID year. We didn't play football at all the year before, and then we entered in this year, and uh, it just was a rough going. Um, so we'll see how this year pans out, um, and I hope and, and pray that uh, the Aggies will will, will do better. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see how it all plays out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um I, I think this is an interesting thing that you you highlighted I think subtly and I I want to bring it to our attention uh, uh to our listeners before we get out of here is that I think there's something that that you hinted at is that the the Swack you said the Swack went all in on on football and I think it also speaks to that that in the HBCU football world the Swack Brand was already stronger than the miak's in general, right? right? Right. And I think that for listeners, that means that Southern and Grambling had the Bayou Classic on NBC for the last, I don't know, thirty years or something like that on Thanksgiving. Um, Jackson State had a brand. Alcorn has had some up and downs, obviously with Steve McNair. Uh, Mississippi Valley State, Jerry, like they had a brand and they've had some runs for the last forty plus years. And then in the Miak you had Florida and M have their runs a had these smaller runs. Hamptons had some runs. But you're talking about Delaware State. I mean, I think the, the you know, I've said this offline. I'll say this on the podcast right? quickly, that like part of the MEAC's problem is that Howard, which has got the biggest name recognition, is not the strongest football program either, right? Athletic so department. Because they don't
2: spend there. on sports. Because they
1: don't spend on sports, right? And I think that this is the thing, right? And so like a in this weird thing where they're like, we're we're in this sport where we're really dominant vis-a-vis the SWAC, but it makes financial sense for us to to bust the games in the Big South for the most part, as opposed to going to Howard. We love playing Howard and everything else, but Howard's not spending money. Delaware State's not spending money uh, on the basketball side. Coppin's not spending money. Morgan's not spending. Mo- you know, like, like there's a lot of up and down. Uh, and, and, and whereas I think on the SWAC side, there were more programs spending money trying to attempting to be competitive uh, on a year in and year out basis. Would you agree with that? I think that's a.
2: No, I, I would. You know, I and mean, you actually bring up a really interesting point in terms of the parallels uh, and the contrast with the swag. You know, one thing I think that, you know, your listeners need to keep in mind is, you know, the, the MIAC came together, as you said, in 1970 or 1969, I believe. Uh, or was it 71? 78. 69. Say it again.
1: 78.
2: Seventy-eight was it that late? Okay, all right. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was early seventies, uh, but you know it was comprised of mostly CIAA schools, mm-hmm. right? and, and the CIAA has always been a basketball conference. Um, the 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 upper uh, uh, South has always been a basketball region. We're talking about the SWAC representing the Deep South. Football is king, mm-hmm. right? and, and so um, you know it, it's about getting teams and institutions. Um, that have largely not been accustomed to making major advancements in their football programs um, to see the value in that. I think over the years, AT did. You know, Howard has the largest endowment by far of any HBCU. Yes. Um, but Howard, again, does not value athletics. Um, they don't need athletics to be. To their front porch, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they, they, they've got all these incredible alumnus and and who are, af, who are entertainers and, and, and politicians. So, um, you know, they, they, I think they have decided that, you know, football is, is not, is not, or sports in general is not something that they are going to break the bank, uh, to do. Um, but you know, for schools like A&T and North Carolina Central and South, I mean, South Carolina state has, has a whole nother bag of issues, uh, you know, but still, shout out to them for winning the Celebration Bowl. Maybe that will help begin to to to, to pump some lifeblood back into that very storied, very proud uh, program. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the MEAC and 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 their football programs and, and their future. Um, you know, I think it's all up in uh, up in the air right now, and I'm hoping that those schools can 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 hold on. I, I think there's been some talk about the big South trying to recruit North Carolina central and trying to get Norfolk state. And what would that mean for, uh, for the MEAC? I'm um, would to mean an utter collapse. Um, you know, there's even been conversation about, you know, maybe some of these institutions need to drop back down to division too, you know, uh, which is something I know you have, have, I think you mentioned that. No, actually do. You, you had a whole nother argument about the future HBCUs? I'm not going to put you on the spot. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> on your commentary, um, but well, but no, I, you know.
1: some of them should be playing against Bowie State, who's in Division Two, right? Right, like, yeah. right. Like I think that's I think you know Del State that's the argument. Yeah, I think you know Dale... I mean? Yeah, and,
2: I mean, so one of the arguments that I've heard from a lot of alumni, particularly from Ant, uh, this is not a popular argument or a popular mm-hmm. position, but Ant will be absolutely dominant at the Division Two level. If we took our current budget and dropped down to Division Two. I mean, we would absolutely dominate and, and perhaps even have a much, much better shot at winning a FCS or, or, or a, uh, a division two national championship. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of pride in, in maintaining division one status. And, uh, you know, but again, if you're going to have that pride, you're going to need to spend some money and invest in these programs. And, and it's it's really kind of difficult when you have half a conference or a quarter of a conference who wants to do that and the other three quarters of the conference who, who do not, who just simply want to um, uh, tread water, you know? And so. I'm a, we're going to have
1: to wrap it up, but I will say y'all, okay. y'all created a problem. Uh, y'all created a problem on y'all's track team because y'all can't go down to Division Two now because y'all's track yeah, team is number one in the country in track and field. And right. I, just, I literally was, before we hopped on, I saw a, a, a tweet. I know you ain't on Twitter, but uh, uh, a tweet about y'all set the new indoor hurdle record, for the season and I'm looking at the the first the A&T finished first and third beating out Clemson and Texas A&M and all these places that and that's and that's a conversation. I know black colleges in general want to be in, but that's especially a conversation that Aggies want to be in when you talk about we best at Clemson we bested, you know, a and m We bested these other, these predominantly white schools, especially the ones in the Southeastern Conference and the ACC. And, and,
2: and look, it's something that we beat our chest about. We're really proud about. But honestly, I'm just praying that we can hang on to, to Coach Ross. Because yeah, yeah, Again, I mean. <laughs> What happens if a Clemson comes out or Ohio State or, or USC or some other track program, major track program, says, hey, we're going to give you pay you twice as much? Because, again, so they have the financial A million resources. dollars a year. Here's a million yeah, dollars a year. Yeah. Like, you, know, I mean, you know, thus far, he said he's all in, and I appreciate his dedication um, to ANT and and I think to HBCUs in general. Uh, but again, therein lies the challenge for a lot of HBCUs. Is how do we not just get to that position of being able to compete, but to remain there and to improve and to escalate? I think that's what a was trying to do with this move to the Big South is that, hey, I think we've believed that we could achieve everything that we wanted to at the HBCU level. Let's continue to move up and uh, pursue um, our dreams of, of winning it all. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's it's a debate. It's, it's an issue that a number of alumni continue to to squabble about where, where we should where we should be what our future is going to be in the athletic world whether it's going to be SCs all in or going back to the Miac and, and coming back to the Celebration Bowl um, you know I f- hey look I enjoyed coming to Atlanta and and having fun at those Celebration Bowls and, <laughs> and seeing my team. I mean that, that's just a it's a really really great experience to see a celebration of HBCU football on that level man so we're still waiting to see uh, your your adopted team, Florida A and M, crack crack in and uh get into the Celebration Bowl at some point, man. It's crazy. It's been like six years, and, and fam hasn't even made it into the. I, into mean, the I mean,
1: I think fam is is you know they they change. They're part of this change. I mean, for listeners who may not be aware, they were in the MEAC for they were you know in the founding group of MiAC teams, and then they two years ago they switched to the SWAC where they're like where they should have been all along you talked about like you talk about this history of most of the schools in the BAC were uh, uh CIAA teams and and uh Florida A&M was a SIAC team S-I-A-C, and, yeah. and they but they regular their biggest games that they had throughout their entire you know SIAC career was a southern southern yeah, was, was their biggest rival, yep. um and none of those teams of the east coast that that yeah. became the BAC were like regular they were just like you know they were just rolled over because that's what FAMU did to just about everybody <laughs> except for like Southern and Grambling and like right. Prairie View and Jackson State. Those are the only teams that could have ever had kind of
0: any success against them. Um, Lou, what you got? Nothing, nothing. I'm just enjoying the, the conversation <laughs> and just looking forward to seeing and hoping the gamble pays off, the gamble to go to the Big South and – because as as Jelani says, it takes money, right? You have to invest, 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 and just hope that it pays off, right? You have to actually win, right? And to to get the playoff, or uh, your basketball team has to get first or second round, right? In in the, in March Madness, and then and then it will be paid off, right? Um, but it's a you you know it's a gamble because you lose that that Saturday fall culture, um, yeah. trying to trying to chase those dollars that you always have to try to chase, right? You can't have the scary part is you can't have it off year, right? Um, but the flip side, as you said, those other schools just they're not investing, but they can invest, right? Because of the stuff we talked about before, the lack of funding from state funding, the lack of, you know, TV dollars that these other programs get in, in their states, the big time schools. So it's like you just can't you you know, if you're an HBCU football team, you know, it's it's really hard to it's really hard to make it, right? Um and so chasing that. The integrated Big South, it might work, it might not work, but it's going to be interesting to see. At least you're with the track,
2: right? And, and yeah, and hey, at you, least Lou, you you mentioned the NCAA tournament, man. You know, of course, we all talk about that one shiny moment. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the, the song that they always play at the end. It's much easier to have a one shiny moment in basketball right. than it is in football. You just need to get in the first
0: round. But the problem, and we'll probably talk about this in March. The problem with the HBCUs, they put them in the they put them on the Tuesday game. Right, they put them in the plans. Yeah, they do, so, but
2: I mean, at least HPCUs yeah. have a, a track record of actually right. winning. I mean, Copper yeah. State pulled off one, and Norfolk State, Hampton. You know, there there are a couple of examples. A couple of yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: there's a handful, but you always remember those moments. So, right. I mean, those Cinderella teams. But again, it's I mean, how many FCS outside of Florida A and right? right? How many HPCUs have actually won in the first round of the FCS football playoffs? The answer right. is, is two. A no, uh, T won one year when they played Tennessee State.
1: The real question is where what black colleges have won when they didn't play another black college? Right. Because like uh, there's a in the 80s, the, the big thing was to pit two black colleges teams together right. in, in the first round. Um, for our listeners who are interested in this subject, uh, Jelani's North Carolina AT Aggies right. on September 10th. I know this is a while, but we will remind you. Uh, They will make the travel. I don't know how they're doing this, and I don't know who the AD scheduled this. They are traveling (laughs) to North Dakota State. Uh, Earl Earl
2: Hilton is his
1: name. (laughs) (laughs) Earl Hilton is scheduled North Dakota State. Winners of seven out of the last nine or something crazy like that of FCS championships. They are literally the Alabama of FCS football. So we are about to find out if y'all are any good early in September. I will be watching that game. Uh, hey. And texting you uh, all the way through because this, it it will be on the big screen when I have all my screens up on on, <laughs> on the thing.
2: Yeah, man. Yeah, as Sam Washington, our head football coach, likes to say, put the put the ball down and play. You know, and I'm, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, again, like you said, you know, North Dakota State is on a whole nother level. Uh, but hey, I, I'm I'm proud of our team, and I'm hoping that we can have a great spring ball and. And uh, field a competitive, a more competitive team this year. Uh, we have our work cut out for us going up to, to Fargo. Uh, we'll see how it all happens. This, it it's an opportunity,
1: be. though. I will say this as a football oh, fan like, you got, like, you know, so long as you don't get like slaughtered, like, if you can stay within. Shouting distance of
2: a loss, well, well here, here, but if you
1: win or you're really competitive, that really is, does so much more work for HBCU football. And it A&T. does.
2: But here's the thing: we must keep in perspective. North Dakota State slaughters everybody. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, there's I, no
1: doubt. There's no doubt about that, right? right. So, like, but
2: again, if we go out and go up there and get blown out by 20 plus points just keep in mind that north dakota state usually makes everybody look bad no so. and, and that's a fair assessment i just think you know the way race and black college works. Oh, of course. And, right like <laughs> oh, it right? be
1: it be it'll be something different to the way uh Without for question. the whole the whole brand gets uh viewed um no. and so on that note we have 50 minutes so i to thank you jelani favors for uh coming on the pod and enlighten us about the, the situation, about the long history of HBCUs and and, and the legacy of activism. And as you said, shelter in a time of storm as they, <laughs> they deal with these kind of bomb threats. I think it is uh, emblematic of the kind of racial animosity that we are facing in this contemporary moment in 2022. Um and uh, also, thank you for those insights on uh, black college football. I'm glad that, that that our listening audience and Lou gets to hear it. Me and, me and July had this conversation probably like once a month uh, uh, <laughs> just to, to to see where, you know, uh, how we fit and how we thinking about the, the landscape at this time. So thank I you.
2: Would, I would like to think that blood, sweat and tears came out of some of the conversations that you and I had. It probably Back did. In, it did. I, I, I'm sure. I, I don't know the, the, any truth of that, but but we we would chop it up. I think Derek met me in in, in uh, '97, and he he was like, man, you know, he would go and you know the football game, Ohio State's playing, and and Maryland's playing, and all these other Big Ten schools are playing. And I'm sitting up here ch- keeping track of, of of how Howard's playing, Howard in Florida, A&M <laughs> and T and Derek. Was like, you, you, why are you following like you know small time sports like that? But you know, I was born and raised on an HBCU campus, man, and I love, love, love athletic, uh, HBCU athletics, man. So, uh, but hey, "Blessed Sweat, and Tears is a great book. I'm proud of you, brother, for, for bringing all the attention that you have to, to, uh, to Florida A&M, to Jake Gaither and his legacy. Uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, those type of books will continue to produce more scholarship on the, the proud legacy and, and the long tradition of HBCU sports in this country. Thank you, brother. Oh, well, on I'm, I'm that note,
0: I think that's peace then. <laughs> peace. Peace.
2: Thanks again. Much love, man. Y'all take care, bro.